I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll break down new comments on the U.S.-China relationship from high-ranking officials from both sides of the Pacific. Plus, we'll take a look at Biden's decision to reimpose aluminum tariffs on the UAE. And it's now more profitable to send empty containers back to China than it is to send containers full of goods. We'll explain why. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. All right, we're back with a brand new episode of The Trade Guys. It's the first full week of February. So we're getting a little bit into the Biden administration, which gives us some more concrete things to discuss. I want to start with kind of dueling comments that were given by top U.S. and Chinese officials this week. And while there hasn't been a publicly reported dialogue between, you know, President Biden and Xi Jinping or senior levels of their governments, this was, you know, kind of the first taste of a, of a back and forth and the, the type of conversation that could occur, I think, between the two of them. So we had on Friday, Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, saying that the United States has to be prepared to impose costs on China for its actions against the Uyghurs and its crackdown in Hong Kong and threats towards Taiwan. And then on Tuesday, we had China's top diplomat, Yang Shaixi, saying, you know, he gave a speech to part of the US, you know, foreign policy community. And in his speech, he used the word cooperation 24 times. And he kind of pitched the economic value of the Chinese market to, to US exporters. And it almost seemed as though he was trying to set a different tone, perhaps, than Jake Sullivan was. So what do you guys make of this kind of first sort of semi-interaction between the two countries? Well, I think on the American side, it's a reflection of, of I think, what Biden said in the campaign. It's a reflection of, of the importance he places on, on human rights issues. It was a way that he could contrast himself with Trump during the campaign, but I think it's sincere on his part, and it's an important element of, of policymaking. At the same time, I, I think he's well aware of the pressure he's under from Congress to take a hard line. American public opinion has shifted sharply in a negative direction as far as China is concerned. For more than 70% of the people now have an unfavorable view. And he's got both parties in Congress urging him to be tough. He's got four Republican senators who want to be president in 2024, each campaigning to see who can be the toughest, all of them calling him out. So he doesn't have an awful lot of maneuvering room, I think, in terms of domestic politics. So I think what Jake was trying to do was to reflect not unreasonable and not blustering, threatening, but a tough line. And to make sure the Chinese are, are aware of, of that, they don't have any illusions about it. As far as Yang Jiechir is concerned, I think that, you know, it was kind of, you know, for me, sort of same old, same old. They always give a cooperation speech. I mean, if you listen, his definition of cooperation is don't talk to us about the Uyghurs. Don't talk to us about Hong Kong. Don't talk to us about Taiwan. Talk to us about trade. And then we'll all get along. 
I don't think that's going to get very far with, with this administration. Yeah, that's sort of the be reasonable, do it my way kind of messaging. Although I would note that, you know, look, a diplomatic spin is not a rarity in modern life or in any time throughout the, the history of diplomacy. But uh, the, when Chinese diplomats uh, are spinning, they usually say one of two things. One is that, you know, you're hurting our feelings. Or the other thing is they say is, hey, you know, there's a lot of money to be made if we just focus on that. And so Bill's, I think, right about the cooperation line being pretty predictable. Uh, but they, they'd prefer that we didn't hurt their feelings by talking about human rights and Hong Kong. And We're hurting the Chinese people's feelings. Yes. We're yeah, not, not hurting just, Jan's feelings. We're hurting the Chinese people's feelings. Yes. Yeah. And it's that. And that's that's something we shouldn't do. So uh, but but in that he also all, they always mention how much money there is to be made. So through cooperation, which I think says something about who they think the audience is here. So but in any case, look, it's it's an early it's early days and actions uh, always speak louder than words. So but I would agree with Bill on the complexity of this, this situation and the fact that Whatever happened four to eight years ago when Jake Sullivan was, was previously in, in government service, the American people have shifted pretty dramatically, and Chinese behavior has changed since then as well. So when Jake Sullivan says the United States has to be prepared to act and impose costs for what China is doing, you know what costs left are there for the Biden administration to impose beyond what the Trump administration has already done, right? There's a pretty broad import restriction from products from Xinjiang in place. They've sanctioned officials for human rights issues. There's hundreds of billions of dollars worth of tariffs on Chinese products. I mean, what what other options does the Biden administration have to ratchet up the pressure even more? I think the most effective one is to try to multilateralize some of those things. I mean, the only thing that Trump tried to multilateralize was Huawei, and he didn't have I think all that much. He had some success. I wouldn't say he had as much as he wanted. I think the Biden approach will try to get a lot of countries, both in, particularly in Europe, but also elsewhere in Asia, to try to follow our lead on some of these sanctions. Not the tariffs, but some of the other things. Yeah, no, it's it's other tools. Look, I, I, I happen to like the UK policy of sort of open immigration from Hong Kong. And a brain drain in Hong Kong to, it would benefit both the United Kingdom and hurt PRC uh, or the Chinese Communist Party at the same time. So that has some some appeal to it. Now, we're, we're not in a position to do exactly the same thing. And Bill's right about alliances, but that takes time to build. And Europe as a whole doesn't appear to be in a position where they want to they be forced to choose between the United States and China. So there's work ahead. Yeah, I didn't say the policy was going to succeed. <laughs> yeah. But I think, that's what, I think that's what they'll attempt. Yeah, well, that was another part of what Sullivan said. Last week, he said that there needs to be more alignment with allies on trade and technology issues and that China is a top discussion for the U.S. and its allies. And, yeah, this is kind of the, the line we've been hearing from opponents of the former president for the past four years. We need to work with allies more. And it's been consistent from the Biden folks since the campaign. And the question that I always have is, you know, who are these allies that we will align with and when will that happen? I think. You know, you guys rightly point out the Europeans seem to be at best divided on how to approach the issue. And at worst, you know, there are raising concerns of what they refer to as strategic autonomy. And no one really knows what that means and, and how willing a partner they'll be. And then 
you have China's economic gravity and weight in Asia, that perhaps turns some of our traditional allies in that region off of taking drastic action. So, you know, it seems like there's a lot of talking the talk, and I understand it's early days, but my question is, when will they, you know, walk the walk and get some of this stuff off the ground? Probably be driven by incidents as much as anything else. Look, everybody wants to hedge. Hedging is the safest place to be. It's the most comfortable place to be until something happens. And so I, I just watch events carefully. In a separate presentation, I think Jake basically said, look, you know, this is not three phone calls and it's all done. It's going to take a lot of work to put this together. I think Scott is right. The Europeans are having, they're having trouble deciding what strategic autonomy means, which is one of their buzzwords. My perception is, I think in America, it's being perceived as let's be a third force somewhere in between China and the United States, where the U.S. view is let's work together against a common challenge. That's a fairly significant difference of point of view. I, I think at, at the 30,000 meter level, there's an agreement that China presents common challenges. But when you get down to having the discussion, well, what are we actually going to do about it? There are differences. But Europe's not the only one. I mean, if you talk to the Japanese, for example, I think they're very worried about what China is doing. They're a lot closer uh, to it. But you know, they're worried about uh, Chinese investment in uh, Japan the same way we're worried about Chinese investment in the United States. I think there's other countries in Asia that are worried too. Now, whether they want to stand up and, and be part of something public is you know, another question, but it, it's hard for me to see uh, an effective coalition being built without Europe, but they're by no means the only people that ought to be interested in this. So we'll watch that space carefully, see what comes of it. Let's go halfway around the world to the Middle East. I think this is the first real trade action, concrete trade action that the Biden administration has taken since taking office. Earlier this week, President Biden said he would keep U.S. tariffs in place on aluminum imports from the UAE, reversing a decision by President Trump made on the day before he left office to remove the tariffs. And I think that decision also came with a sale of something like 50 F-35s as well. So it's kind of a sweet deal for the UAE on the way out. But, you know, in making the decision, the White House said that available evidence indicates imports from the UAE may still displace domestic production and thereby threaten to impair our national security. But curiously, then, a White House spokesperson yesterday added that the president's decision to lift the tariffs was made clearly on the basis of foreign policy issues unrelated to trade. So it seems like the UAE aluminum tariff issue has gotten caught up in a whole bunch of different policy calculations. So what's your take on this? Does this have more to do with trade or does it have to do with broader foreign policy geopolitical concerns? I think it had more to do with our Mideast policy than our trade policy. Kushner went all over the region cutting deals to try to get governments to recognize Israel. I think a useful goal. UAE did that. And now we're seeing the payoff. We saw the payoff with Morocco. Morocco agreed to do it. And we recognized their interest in the Western Sahara, which we had declined, you know, the previous, what, 12 presidents had declined, however many it is, had declined to do. So this was part of the payoff to the UAE. And I don't think it was motivated by, by trade. And the fact that they've held up the plane sales to review is, I think, also an indication 
that this has more to do with you know Mideast policy than it has to do with with trade. You know that said, the fact that they went back to the previous tariffs and said that you know there was really no national security rationale for changing them and that he'd used a, an irrelevant rationale for changing them. I mean, I think it is fair to say that's kind of a signal that that they're not looking to to make wholesale changes in in that policy. Which I'd also say I think is what Scott and I have predicted. So yeah, look, it's very interesting because I, I think Bill's right when it comes to Mideast policy that there's a lot of things to sort out there. Things are very different than they were just a few years ago in the Middle East for a lot of reasons, having to do with energy flows and geostrategy and, and U.S. policy. But this will take some time to sort out. But when it comes to trade policy, look on a macro level, the United States has generally low tariffs, has an open investment policy. We have contestable markets at home. We have a general sort of global outlook by our leading corporations. So that's the macro side. But on the micro side, you never discount the role of politics, domestic politics, in in the micro trade action. And this would, I think, constitute a micro trade action, but one that has a domestic political agenda behind it, as well as the foreign policy dimensions. So I think I think it'll take a little time to get clarity, but never discount domestic politics. They they work in whether a Republican or a Democrats in the White House, and they work almost without regard to the macro conditions. What struck me most about the decision was the White House comment that available evidence indicates imports from the UAE may still displace domestic production and thereby threaten to impair national security. I mean, that's an admission, essentially, that the Biden administration agrees with the logic behind the 232 tariffs, right? Which is, you know, for for all American interest, industries, whether producers or users of aluminum steels, a pretty pretty big statement, I think. And it leads me to ask whether you think that you know Biden views this as a opportunity to shore up support with unions, the labor movement, and you know the manufacturers that actually smelt and, and produce the aluminum and steel? Or does he, you know, really subscribe to the idea that imports of this stuff really do threaten U.S. national security? Hey, you've got a hammer that works. Let's look at everything like a nail and use it some more. So I think, look, Donald J. Trump campaigned on using Section 232. He, he gave a speech in the summer of 2016 in Pittsburgh during the campaign, talked about it explicitly. He came into office and he started using it almost immediately and nobody stopped him. So guess what? There's another tool available for whoever wants to use it. And it looks like Team Biden took took the chance and is proceeding. I'd like to be a little bit more optimistic than that. I mean, I think I think Scott's probably right, uh, particularly in the short run. I mean, they did say not to overinterpret this and, and not to make assumptions about the whole policy based on this single decision. But I'm hopeful that as once they actually get into thinking about this particular problem, meaning aluminum, but also steel, that it really is a global overcapacity problem. And it's a global overcapacity problem caused by one country, China. And Trump's mistake, I think, was to sort of, and it was classic Trump, you know, let's, you know, bully people in submission. You know, we'll impose tariffs and then, you know, and we'll impose tariffs on all these other countries besides China. And then they'll have to do the same thing to China and I win. Well, they didn't do that in the way that he expected. A lot of them just retaliated against us. 
a better approach was to recognize that there's a global overcapacity problem and try to make the OECD steel committee, and if you want, have an aluminum committee as well, uh, more effective and, and construct a global safeguard, a global approach to the problem, and negotiate with everybody a common action against the, the culprit, in this case, China, and try to basically force them to eat the surplus that they've created. I hope that the Biden people get there, because that, that doesn't mean the tariffs necessarily go away, but it will equalize the, the, the playing field. Everybody else will be doing the same thing, and it will solve our WTO litigation problems. Let's go to a more structural behind-the-scenes story that I think is fascinating. There's been reporting this week that competition over containers, like the steel containers that you see on classic images of container ships, are in such high demand from China that China is willing to pay a huge premium for them. And as a result, it's now more profitable for countries that, you know, use these same containers usually to export, fill them up and export goods around the world. It's more profitable just to send them back to China empty than it is to fill them with their own exports. And so, you know, it's resulted in a bunch of, you know, weird ripples where, you know, rice isn't getting to where it's supposed to go. Countries can't offload certain goods. And, you know, American soybean exporters are having to fight for containers to supply their customers. You know, the cost of carrying goods from China to the U.S. is now 10 times higher than the opposite journey. So, you know, are you guys surprised to see this? I, I was, it's kind of a shocking story for me because you kind of just take it all for granted that the ships come in, they empty the containers, they refill the containers, and, and they go back out. But what do you guys make of this? This really isn't governments involved. Let's be clear that you mentioned countries. It's individual shippers. These are private transactions, for the most part, that are going on. Second, if there is a balance of trade on a bilateral or a multilateral basis, and everybody has enough containers, but think of the container, the, the physical you know, shipping container, as the instantiation of the, of the trade deficit. And so you, when the United States runs a large trade deficit with China, it means we, a lot of empty containers wind up in the United States and they have to go back to pick up the surplus. Now, this, this has been happening for years. And uh, so a, a lot of sort of westbound ships from Los Angeles and Long Beach have empty containers on them, whereas all the eastbound ships are full. The containers themselves are full. So it's not surprising to see them build up. It does create an interesting market. But my view is there are markets in everything, including empty containers. What surprised me about it was the apparent economics of it. that They can actually make more money shipping empty containers back than they can shipping full containers back. I mean, to me, the thing that was disturbing was there's soybeans, there's other crops, there's, there's stuff that actually is awaiting shipment across the Pacific. And some of the shipping companies would rather ship the empty containers rather than fill them up or, you know, wait for the beans to arrive to fill them up. To me, that suggests kind of a rather significant uh, flaw in the market. Well, we'll see if this corrects itself. My guess is it will. Look, my baseline view is there are markets in everything. I remember uh, my corporate days was fortunate to travel to Moscow 
for a meeting. This is the mid-90s. So Boris Yeltsin is the president and the Soviet Union has crumbled and everything's new in Moscow. So I did what every American tourist did, which is go see all the sites, including Gorky Park. And one of the things I saw in Gorky Park was a street vendor who was selling burnt out light bulbs. Now think about this. All right. There was a market for burnt out light bulbs. So why would you buy a burnt out light bulb? Well, it's because there weren't enough regular light bulbs in the store at a reasonable price. So you bought the burnout light bulb from the guy in Gorky Park, put it in your lunch bucket. When you went to work at the office, you would unscrew a functioning light bulb, screw in the burnout light bulb, and take the functioning light bulb home with you. All right. So that's how the market worked because there were there were oversupply of new light bulbs for the commercial sector and not for the public. And so now that's Moscow well, 1995. Long Beach 2021 is is a little further along, but th those still things happen. There are disruptions. Well, I, I suppose the, the answer it's, you know, in the long run, it all works out. It's of course, as Kane said, in the long run, we're all dead. So yes. I'm yes. Sure that's a particularly optimistic. Yeah, I don't think that guy is still in Gorky Park selling light bulbs, so the burnt out ones. So, so. Well, I would hope not, but the, uh, the Russian economy is not really doing that well, so it, maybe he's back. Could be. <laughs> okay, well, with that fantastic anecdote, Scott is truly an encyclopedia, <laughs> walking encyclopedia. We'll put a lid on it for today. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode of The Trade Guys. You know where to find us, and we'll talk to you all then. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.